Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, I'm speaking with Congressman Mac Thornberry, ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman Thornberry has represented the 13th Congressional District of Texas since 1995, and he served as chairman of the House Armed Services Committee from 2015 to 2019. Congressman Thornberry is retiring from the U.S. House of Representatives this year and will be discussing the fiscal year 2021 National Defense Authorization Act and his career on Capitol Hill. Well, thank you so much, Congressman Thornberry, for joining me. Let me start by asking you this. What is it like to have an entire bill named after you? The National Defense Authorization Act is officially the William M. Mac Thornberry National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021. Oh, truthfully, it makes me a little uncomfortable, partly because the focus of our bill, as you well know, is on the men and women who serve and how we can support them. And, and so I appreciate what Chairman Smith and all my colleagues on the committee have done. Very nice, very generous, but I'm still a little uncomfortable about the whole thing. Well, that just speaks to your personality and humbleness. I want to spend a little time talking about the bill itself, about the men and women in uniform that you're looking to support. And then if you'll indulge me some time talking about your career in Congress and maybe some of the things that have stayed the same and changed over time. But starting with the bill, we've had just incredible bipartisan support, really, as we often do on these NDAA cycles, the authorization bill. The House bill passed 295 the Senate version 86 to 14. Uh, Are you surprised, given that it's a presidential election cycle, that there was so much bipartisanship? In many ways, it's the thing that I'm most proud of, that there has been out of committee unanimously, and then as you point out, in both the House and the Senate, such strong bipartisan support. Because truthfully, it's getting harder and harder to do that on anything. And, and so it, uh, as I look at the bill, it's, it's really the thing I am most proud of. But, but the other factor, as you well know, is that so many members of Congress, literally in the hundreds, contribute some aspect to this bill. It's, it's the way the legislative process works the, as we learned in junior high civics or something. And, and so you can develop a bipartisan bill if you have this sort of widespread participation and if you understand the red lines, if you will, uh, on the other side. And, and I give Chairman Adam Smith a whole lot of credit. He did not go in on some of the issues in the way he could have, in the way that, that the House did last year, that, that made it impossible to have a bipartisan bill. 
Yeah. So last year to this point, the bill was held up for a while over debate on the low yield sub-based nuclear warhead and limits or questions around funding for the border wall out of DOD. That didn't happen, as you point out this year. But in lieu of that, there's contention, at least stated in the administration's position between the Hill in a bipartisan sense and the White House. Can you talk a little bit about the threat to veto that the president or the administration put forward in its statement, and in particular over this issue of renaming of army bases or of military bases after Confederate generals. Can I say one thing before that? And, And no one should think that because this bill passed with such strong bipartisan majorities that it doesn't do anything. There are still controversies in here. There are a number of big, important issues that are addressed in some fashion or another. I certainly don't agree with it all. But so not only is does it have broad bipartisan support, but it's substantive and frankly, one of the few bills that are likely to get all the way through the process this year. But as, as you point out, like in most years, the administration has sent us a long list. I think it's about 13 pages of complaints they have with the bill, things they don't agree with to varying degrees of intensity. One of the things that they are most adamant about is the mandatory renaming of bases that have been named for Confederate generals in the past. So it is one of the contentious issues that that we have to resolve. Frankly, I think we can resolve it. There is a way to require a process to examine these names without preordaining what the outcome of that process is. Whether it's possible to do that before an election with this close to an election. I don't know. So that may, among other things, put us off into a into after the election for a final conference report. Well, do you think this particular issue is one worth Congress holding the line, if you will, on? And, and in what way would you be comfortable with that being resolved, if you're willing to talk about that in the midst of negotiations? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to repeat some of the points I tried to make in our committee deliberations. Because in committee, I offered a substitute that, that essentially did require each of the services, but we're really talking about the Army here, to, to have a process of community input with active duty, retired, civil rights groups, all talking about the name that it currently had. And if they believe that they should consider a different name, then there would be another process to consider what that a different name would be. I suspect for most of these bases that the result of that process would be that the name would change. But my, my argument is that rather than have a Washington dictate, you must change this name whether you like it or not, having that time and community input so they can sit down and listen to one another. So a community leader, for example, can hear a young active duty service member say, I am uncomfortable every time I come on this base and see this Confederate name on there so that they can have that dialogue. And and it generates this change from the ground up rather than a Washington did that. I think that works better. I think it will be more impactful 
where it counts in people's attitudes rather than changing some signs uh, on the front of the base. So I was not successful in committee. I am hopeful, however, whether it's that or some other formulation, we can require an examination of this, but also do so in a way that can get the bill signed into law. So let's move to then what you think are some of the big priorities in this bill. What are you most proud of beyond getting the bill passed? And you'll have to remind me the number of years in which the House Armed Services Committee has succeeded in doing so. But beyond getting the bill passed, what substantive areas are you most proud of? Yeah, well, it's been signed into law for 59 straight years. This would be year number 60. I think a host of areas. One is family resiliency. In, in other NDAAs, we have really focused on the men and women who serve. We have, as, as you remember, retirement reform, health care reform, different things uh, that are some pretty big changes in recent years. But this year, we tried to focus on families and making sure that family readiness and resiliency is considered in readiness as a whole for the force. So there's a number of very good family-related issues here. This bill moves ahead with nuclear modernization. As you pointed out earlier, it's a controversial topic, but we are at a point where we don't have much time. In other words, all three legs of the triad, plus the weapons themselves, are aging out at the same time, so we cannot afford to lose time in modernizing that that triad. Um, there... You know, I, again, have some provisions to try to make help the department be more innovative. And and so we've got a, a package of acquisition reforms in here and next steps on Space Force. There's there's just a pretty good list of things that I think advance the ball. One of the clear bipartisan areas, I think, uh, that I've heard, particularly in recent months, more and more so, is a view that the pace and scale, you mentioned innovation, the pace and scale of change inside DOD is not keeping up with the ambition of the strategy. One area, for instance, that's in this bill, in addition to the, rightfully the reform items you mentioned, is this creation of a new pot of money, a new fund focused on the Indo-Pacific. And I believe that you all have a slightly different language from the House to the um, Senate side. But on the House side, it's called the Indo-Pacific Reassurance Initiative. And it's got about $3.5 billion in it for FY21. Is this part of an effort from the House to try to get closer to this innovation in order to compete effectively in the, in the case of Indo-Pacific, specifically with China? Yeah, really, it, it's an effort to implement the national security strategy. So if we say the Indo-Pacific is our priority theater, we need to put our money where our mouth is. And a couple of years ago, the House instigated the creation of, I forget what we called it then, but an Indo-Pacific stability fund. The appropriators never funded it and DOD never requested money for it. So we're taking the next steps this year and requiring that it be funded with specific projects. And, and we take that from things that the administration had requested, as well as Indo-PACOM unfunded priorities list, as well as another report we required Admiral Davidson to give to us. And, and again, it's it's pretty simple idea. Most people believe the European Defense Initiative has been successful in helping us 
work through issues that arise with multiple nations working together, exercises, infrastructure, things like that. And if it's worked well there, then we ought to consider using it in our priority theater. And and so I do think now you have the House and Senate on board. Secretary Esper has expressed uh, support. So I think it's going to happen. I, I can't tell you exactly the details that will be under it, but it, I think it'll be a good sign to everyone watching that we are willing to put our money where our mouth is in the Indo-Pacific. One of the debates that goes along with this idea of how quickly the department can innovate is the degree to which it's making space, making room for new kinds of capabilities, new investments, and that requires really hard trade-offs with some legacy systems that might be doing great. They might be really high performers, but they may not be the best capabilities to pursue for the future. This is an area where you pointed out the incredible congressional interest that's widespread. Members have a lot of different interests in defense, and they relate, obviously, to some of their constituent interests. It makes it really tough to make turn-on-a-dime changes. What's your sense of how ready Congress is to make hard choices um, in order to work under a fixed top line toward the strategy? It will always be difficult. And, and you point out one of the reasons that is members of Congress are understandably and naturally advocates for workers' interests in their district. But the other reason is we can't just stop the world and go innovate for the future. We have to be ready for the threats that are present now. And, and so that's, I think, to me, really what makes this hard to walk away from capability upon which we depend today and have a bet for capability that will come tomorrow is a hard thing to do. But I, I think the larger point you make is right. We're going to have to be able, willing to walk away, if not walk away, at least lessen our dependency and our investment in some of these legacy programs. Now, to do that successfully, we can't just bet on uh, a program that will be coming down the pike because, as you know, we have wasted a lot of money on programs that did not pan out. So it is, you, you point out about innovation, it is getting from here to there rapidly where you have a pretty certain idea that the new program will work and that you can get it fielded in sufficient numbers that it will make a difference in a timely way. It's, it's that speed of getting new technology into the hands of the warfighter that I think is one of our biggest challenges. Yeah, and an area you've spent so much time and energy on. I want to want to get into that. And before, right before I do that, let me just ask you one more specific thing in this bill, which is the elimination of the chief management officer position in DOD. It's an effort that had been previously pushed in management reforms. Now it's, it seems to be going to the wayside. Do you still advocate for a chief management officer in DOD, or have you lost confidence in that position uh, working out? I do not think it has worked out. And as, as you remember, this was required by an NDAA a few years ago. We've had several very good people in the job, but the authority has never matched the responsibility. And, and what was most persuasive to me is that the defense at, at our uh, requirement, the Defense Business Board conducted a study. They talked to many people and were very thorough, in my opinion, and very persuasive 
in my opinion, concluding that it cannot work as is currently constructed. And so they said you can either set up a separate deputy secretary for the department or with a couple of other options. And and so I, th- I think enhancing the ability of the current deputy to administer the fourth estate and, and some of the other things that, that were hoped to be accomplished here makes more sense. And so now you have the elimination of that position, again, that was created by Congress, You have it in both the House and the Senate bills to eliminate it this year. So that, I think, links really nicely to this idea on acquisition reform. You know, in other words, Congress is willing to try something. If it sees evidence is not working, it's willing to move away from it. You've put so much time and effort into getting after what are the problems in acquisition in order to allow the department to innovate quickly. There have been a lot of changes over the years. Obviously, Senator McCain also put a significant amount of time into this area. What is your assessment right now? What's working? What needs to still change? I think we're doing, the department is doing better. And I recognize, as, a, as opposed to the conversation we were just having on CMO, that for some of these changes, you've got to give it time to work. Uh, because what you're after is not just a legal or regulatory change, you're after a cultural change as well. And so I do think what you're ha- seeing now with the department are, are not only more tools, legal and regulatory, but you have a department leadership that is pushing and pulling in the same direction. And you are seeing more innovation take place because you're getting all of that more aligned, if you will, than you than you have in the past. I still worry about small, mid-sized companies, especially after COVID, being able to do business with the Department of Defense. That's where a lot of the innovation takes place. What happens often today is the big defense companies will buy up these smaller companies to get their intellectual property. But if it conflicts with with other priorities, then it may not come to fruition. I still think one of the things for us all to keep our eye on moving forward is how readily the small and mid-sized innovative companies can can access the department and its procurement system. You have spent almost 25 years as a member of the House Armed Services Committee. You've worked on many other national security portfolios. I won't I won't walk through all of that while in Congress. There's such a, a debate today over the role of the executive branch, the role of the legislative branch in the creation of foreign policy and specifically on use of force issues. It's not the first time that that's happened in American history, but I'd love to get your reflections on where you think that trajectory is going. As I think back over NDAAs in recent years, I think we've had some notable successes. We have put in place a structure to oversee counterterrorism operations worldwide outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. We have put in place a structure to oversee cyber operations, and that's becoming more and more important. Where we have failed is on authorizations for the use of military force. Several years ago, I want to say 2011 and 12, the House did in its NDAA, even though it's not technically our jurisdiction, but in our NDAA, we modified the 2001 AUMF somewhat to reflect the fact that it's not just Al-Qaeda, it's these affiliated groups that pose a terrorist threat. We couldn't convince the Senate to go along, but there's been no 
effort in either body, really, to update those AUMFs since then. And I think that's a major, major failure. So when it comes to the executive versus legislative, there will always be tension, but Congress has to be able and willing to assert itself especially where the Constitution gives us clearly the responsibility to make these decisions. And and whether you call it a declaration of war or an authorization to use military force, that's really a technical difference. It's our job to do it. And if we don't do our job, the executive is going to take it from us. And, and, and so there's been, as I say, there's been some successes, there's been failures, but there's Congress needs to uphold our responsibilities under the Constitution. And do you think that this is fundamentally about polarization or are there other factors at play? And let me just add in, do you think that, do you see as you leave Congress this year that we are more polarized inside the House and on Capitol Hill than in the past? And if so, is that something that we should be worried about? Well, the answer to those questions is obviously yes. Things are more polarized now than I have ever seen, certainly far more polarized than when I originally was elected to Congress or before that when I was a staffer during the Reagan years. And it is something that we should be worried about. And this gets back to where we started. One of the reasons I think it's so important to pass a defense bill, if you're going to pass anything, with bipartisan support. It ought to be a defense bill because if you're a soldier on a hill in Afghanistan or a sailor out on in the middle of the Pacific or, you know, in the desert, in the jungle, you need to know that the whole country is behind you and supporting you and is with you on your mission. Not that it's one party or the other, that it's the whole country. And and so it's just essential that if we can hold on to some bipartisanship somewhere, that it needs to be in support of our military. But I, I do not underestimate the pressures, that the polarization pressures that are pulling us in, in different directions. And it's going to be, it is harder and it will be harder unless we turn things around to maintain that sort of bipartisan support. One other thing back to what we were talking about with executive and legislative, timelines have been compressed so much. When you're talking about cyber as a domain of warfare. You don't have time to go through Congress and have a bunch of hearings and and so forth. So I do think part of the reason that you have the executive branch playing a bigger role in some of these war and peace decisions is because of the change in technology that's compressed timelines that require decisions to be made in a very or or prior authorizations to, on how to handle certain situations and and cyber is probably the best example of that yeah that i mean that's such a a great insight because there is this pressure to be quick responsive move at the speed of operations and the operations are speeding up on the bipartisanship piece the uh, the other piece that makes this complicated course, as it always is, the top line is constrained. And you can see in a COVID environment, even more and more pressure. And here you have defense, which is taking up a lot of discretionary dollars relative to other things that puts a lot of pressure on defense. So we had this year a failed attempt in both the House and the Senate to cut sort of off the top 10% of the defense budget. What is your projection on the top line of DOD? Well, you're right. Those attempts to cut the top line were defeated pretty soundly in both bodies. I think most Americans 
do not appreciate the fact that the DOD is right at 15% of our, our total budget these days. And so, yes, all of the COVID and other spending will put pressure on everything else. There's no question about that. But you could eliminate the Pentagon and all the military and you don't make a drop in the bucket. The rest of the story is the world is not going to be any safer on the other side of COVID than we are seeing now. I believe that there are those who will try to take advantage of this situation and, and potentially even take advantage of what they are learning from our response to a pandemic. So biological threats are one of the things that, that concern me as, if, as we're listing the threats. I, I do think, though, that American leaders in especially recent years have not done a very good job of explaining how the rest of our quality of life depends upon the security that comes from a strong military. And last year before or before COVID, I was going around talking to various chambers of commerce around the country, talking a little bit about what a remarkable thing we did after World War II to be engaged in the world, to have that strong military, to have that commitment, and all of the benefits that flow from it, even beyond security, to economic and quality of life and so forth. So I guess I do think that it will be absolutely necessary for presidents, members of Congress, leaders of all sorts to help remind each other that what we have built in this country and around the world depends in a fair measure on us having a strong military. And if we take away or, or undermine that strong foundation, then the other things we're so, that are so important to us also could be eroded. You've been chair of the House Armed Services Committee, you've chaired and been ranking and, and had any number of roles in a variety of hearings with military and Defense Department officials over the many years. In a general sense, what can, have they done best and where do they tend to miss in terms of making that case to the American people and to Congress? Oh, I, I don't want to just put it on, on their shoulders. I, if, if you're the Secretary of Defense, then most of the questions are about what's happening today. And that's where most of his or her attention has to be focused. I'm really thinking more about presidents and members of Congress who have, within our responsibility, all of these competing demands. And I do think it's, it, that we have not done a very good job. And we Americans simply take it for granted that uh, we don't have to worry about being attacked on our shores, that we have free access of global commons, whether it's the oceans or space. And, and increasingly, because of the Chinese and others, those things that we take for granted may not be there for us in, in the years ahead. And all of that comes back to a strong military. Now, at the same time, while we're making the case for why a strong military is important, we need to keep working to make the department more efficient. And, you know, all of those. So uh, there, there's internal work we have to do to show we're not just throwing money on problems, but that fundamental need to have a military second to none and how much of our life depends upon it, I think is, is a case we, we, and I include myself in this, all should have been and in the future need to make better.
We've had very recently, particularly with the Lafayette Square incident, you know, a low point. I don't know quite if I would call it generational low point, but close to that on civil military relations. Do you think that's recoverable? And what are the best steps to recovering if you do? It's recoverable. I do think the most encouraging aspect is that especially the folks in the military are very sensitive on this point right now because of what happened uh, with the recent demonstrations and, 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 and so forth. So, you know, my view is the debate has been, among other things, about the Insurrection Act, which we've had since 1807. We ought to be hesitant about knee-jerk reactions to particular events and, and particular political personalities. But I think we all need to be on our guard at the role of the military in domestic law enforcement activities. And we've got it at the border. We've had it in the streets. And, and it is, uh, I think we all need to be a, a little extra sensitive when it comes to that. Because, and, and among, for many reasons, but one of them is if you take this annual survey, what institutions do you respect the most? The military is at the top. Now, if, if they get in the midst of some of these sorts of domestic political differences, that's not going to continue. And, and, and again, they deserve to have the full support of the whole country when they are sent out on a mission. And that out is uh, generally outside the country. Congressman Thornberry, as, I, as promised, I do want to ask you, looking back over 25 years, I'm sure there's no way to easily summarize was been just a tremendously impactful career on Capitol Hill. But what could you point to a few things that you think have are particularly striking to you, give you the most hope for the future of defense of the republic? Welcome your thoughts. <laughs> well, I would say two things. One is it's been an extraordinary opportunity, but no one can accomplish anything in a legislative branch unless you work with a lot of other people. And, and so back to where we were, st we started. I think that ability to work across the aisle, across the Capitol to get things done on behalf of the military and our national security is just critical. The, the other thing I, I never would have thought that I would have been, I would have stayed in Congress this long, but two factors. Number one is when you're around the men and women who serve in the military, you just get inspired. And you think, my gosh, if they can do that, then I can suck it up with these, you know, people who talk too long and, and carry on in Congress. Being able to see them, be around them, from the top generals to the early privates, that's been an incredible experience. And, and the one other thing I would say, Secretary Ash Carter kind of told me this story a few years ago where a young airman didn't know whether he wanted to reenlist or not. And Secretary Carter told him there is no higher calling, no greater purpose in your life than to help defend your fellow citizen and protect his freedom. And, and that's always stuck with me because I do think it's the mission when it comes to national security that helped, that has helped at least keep me going a lot longer than I ever thought in, in this job. But it's also the thing that helps bring us together and inspire us. And that's where I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to have been able to work in that field. 
Well, Congressman Mac Thornberry, I want to thank you for your service, and it continues. You're not you're not done yet, and we look forward to seeing the NDAA signed into law. And I also look forward to all the public service I know you will continue to provide even after you have left the House. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ken. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.